Hello and welcome to Micromaterialism. Now, normally, we take an exciting material science topic, we break it down into a bite-sized episode. About 10 minutes, we always fail to get it down that, that small, but we try to do our best. But it's year three, and we got a lot of great feedback on the book review that we did on our Instagram, so we wanted to take it to the next level and do another book review. This is a book published by the same publisher, Stripe Press. This one's called Scientific Freedom, The Elixir of Civilization by Donald W. Brabin. Now, before we get into anything, I just want to comment first on the construction quality of the book and the materials <laughs> it's a good in play. Book. Normally, when you have a small book, you have to like struggle to hold it open. You can't just lay it flat on something. This book, not a problem. There's an aesthetic experience to reading, and every time I have to think about the book that I'm reading, instead of the words that are on the page, the whole experience is just ruined. So shout out to them for making a very quality book that's actually enjoyable to read. Now, down to the meat of it. To give an overview, Brabin provides us with a recipe for generating the next revolution in science. He pulls from his experience working in academic institutions and transformative research institutions to highlight the current problems. He starts by saying that the method that we're currently using to select research is kind of garbage, right? It uses a lot of design by committees or selection by committees and peer review that ends up stunting creativity. He then goes over the the challenges that are facing the world right now and the dire need for transformative research, right? A lot of the research happening right now tends to be rather marginal increases. We haven't seen a lot of those transformative um, fundamental changes in our understanding of science that came out of Planck, Einstein, these, you know, these titans, a lot of those back in the 20th century, we just haven't seen as much coming into this 21st century, despite the fact that there's more researchers than ever and there's more money going into research than ever. Finally, he pulls from his experience working in BP's transformative research division for 10 years. He ended up heading this division during that time as well to tell us how he was able to take his knowledge and understanding of these problems and create a system that was much more effective in producing several Nobel-winning uh, scientific findings. I gotta say, as I read this book, it was like I was in the Revolutionary War. Like, I was reading some secret revolutionary document because the stuff he's saying flies so counter to common practice right now. I mean, it, it strikes a nerve. He's really a revolutionary in firebrand in that he knows where to point out the problems with the current system and proposes radical, absolutely radical ideas. It doesn't mean they're wrong, but they're really out there. So let's dive into some of these things. Uh, let's start with his contention. He says that there have been these revolutions, scientific revolutions, and that we are stagnant right now. Mm -hmm. Is that really the case? One of the evidences that he puts forward is he takes the science magazine and every year they publish their invention or discovery of the year plus the nine runners up. So he, he just lists them all out there and he's like, look at this list. And he's like, when I look at these, they look a little bit more like a progress report than anything. Like I'm not seeing the breakthroughs of relativity. A lot of them seem incremental, right? Which is like a dirty word in science, right? You don't want to be incremental. You want to be breakthroughs, right? And if that's the best we've done in the last, you know, 10-ish years, is that a problem? And then he compares that with the olden days approach and what they were doing you know, not that long ago, and they were massive strides. So what's happened? I mean, one of the big things that he highlights and says needs to go and is peer review. You know, the gold standard of academia, you know, oh, is that paper peer reviewed? Using peer review selection processes to get degrees and other things, especially in graduate school. And he says that, you know, bringing a lot of people in there, now it relies on a lot of their expert opinions to decide whether something's going to be 
transform well so whether something should be you know funded or not and a quick note it's he's not saying that we should get rid of peer review of publications right the way that science is done is based on peer review it's based on reproducibility it's based upon this debate of ideas Mm -hmm. that's not what he's saying he's saying at the proposal stage peer review is really dangerous because you take so-called experts and what they are is experts in what is already known but if you're trying to discover entirely new fields of course they're going to be very critical of it and those proposals aren't surviving the proposal process in fact something i learned reading this which shocked me because i am an academic i write proposals for a living i feel like sometimes that's where like 80 percent of what i do is writing grants and administering them is that not that long ago you know a, lot, you know, a couple of generations ago before the 70s basically there was just f- money allocated and with very little work essentially no proposal writing, you were guaranteed funding to work on projects. But in the period roughly from 1970 forward, there's been this massive growth in the number of researchers and the number of institutes, and there just wasn't enough money to go around. And so necessarily it became this competition thing where nowadays, I don't know if you listeners know this, but your average proposal has 20% chance of getting funded if you're lucky. Some of them are down in the tens or even less, right? So that means I'm going to spend three weeks writing a proposal, right? And then only one out of 10 of those is going to get funded. No wonder I'm spending all my time writing. What are, honestly, a lot of those are good proposals that get shot down. There's some that still need work, right? That need a second pass through. Mm -hmm. But all of this stifles creativity and it stifles scientific freedom, right? And this is one of the main tenets of the book that he's getting across. When you start bringing more and more people together, you start to get this sort of a dissolution of any sort of responsibility for this work. Yeah, shared responsibility is responsibility declined. It's on the page I'm looking at right now. I love that. Yeah, it's a great quote. And and you see it all the time, right? Like, if you're in a position where it's just on you to do something, one, you feel more onus to do it, but also it makes it easier to identify who's responsible for the work as well. If you talk to a lot of undergraduates, like myself, it's hard to think about who are the transformative or major players in the scientific community right now, because right now everything is very collaborative and there aren't any standout figures. But it's often that when you bring a lot of people together, if you've done a group project, you'll find that a lot of times design by committee often yields rather poor results. Rather than getting one really exceptional thing and then some you know, weaker parts, you tend to get everything being averagely good, but you don't get those exceptions that you're actually looking for. Rabin talks about this and says that there really is a lack of importance uh, given to individuals in science anymore. And much of this stems from just the sheer amount of people who are in colleges looking for research these days. Another challenge that he points to that I found was really interesting was the the problem with assessment, right? We're so obsessed with, I think, trying to prevent waste, which is such an important thing. We don't want waste. But when you direct that at science, what you're really doing is handcuffing people because you're saying, you have to give me results. And the nature of research is is that it's completely open-ended. He points to some of the titans of the past. Max Planck, right, is one of the a most amazing discoveries, like the quantized energy phenomenon that he discovered is absolutely critical to our understanding of the atomic structure of materials. And yet for 20 years, he points out that he did basically nothing, right? That he he fiddled about and didn't really achieve anything. Nowadays, if I tried to write a grant and I said, we'll see what I find, and I don't have results, even yearly, right? I'm getting yearly. And some projects, you know, depending on the funding agency, it might be quarterly progress reports where they want to see every quarter that you've accomplished a new paper, a new finding, it's so taxing and you're you're so much chasing after their short-term goals that you're not spending any of the critical time you need to develop the big picture ideas to really chase 
fundamental transformational new ideas. So that freedom, lifting the burden of assessment and saying instead, go and do good science and trusting, because it requires mutual trust, trusting that researchers want to do good science. They don't want to waste funds. They want to study science like we have for the last 500 years. Um, that's what he's arguing for. And that is radical right now because every funding agency I've ever had wants to make an accounting at the end of it. They want to see how many publications, how many students have you trained, what was the impact factor of the journals? They want to know all those metrics. And he's arguing that those metrics are ultimately counterproductive to real discovery. Yeah, exactly. Bringing in these waves of students has turned many of these universities into more of a business. And in business, metrics are everything, right? You want to have a good return on your investment. But science just, especially transformative science, just isn't like that. You know, think about if Planck or Einstein, a lot of these people who spent possibly decades of working on their transformative discoveries were alive today. It's probably unlikely that many of them would have gotten funding for the discovery that they made, or at least it would have been very hard to guarantee that. Now, this all sounds really great in theory, right? But what makes this book really great is that in one of the last chapters, Brabin talks about his time working in BP Oil's transformative research division, which he headed for 10 years. He walks you through the process of what he would look for when um, researchers were applying. He walks us through what he looked for when he was selecting projects. I think in total they, they sponsored about 26. 26. And by the way, the price on those was only like 20 to $30 million. Right. That's that's tiny compared to how we fund science now. And that's, that's over, not that's a over major, 10 years. Yeah, that's over a decade. Like, that's nothing. And um, it ends up being 0.5% of BP's total research budget, so small compared yeah. to everything else, right? Naturally, BP's probably interested in their, their oil production and that stuff, but to take even just a small slice to produce several Nobel-winning papers out of it yeah. for the benefit of humanity yeah. uh, seems quite, uh, quite a good thing to do. But when he's talking about a selection one, he focuses on the abstract, right? He's not looking, oh, I'm going to go into thermoelectrics and try to improve their, their conductivity. He's looking for science in the abstract, looking for fundamental transformations. If we're looking on the minutiae, we're unlikely to find a lot of those great you know, leaps forward. A lot of it happens in a little more abstract sense. Yeah. I loved it when he talks about, since a lot of this book is about how to pick these future, he calls them the Max Planck you know, club, people who would be like Max Planck, but in our generation, he had a couple different tests, right? For example, one was the Max Planck test, meaning you your way of funding has to have been able to have caught Max Planck at the beginning of his career. Remember, this is a guy who spent 20 years futzing about before he unraveled thermodynamics for the rest of us, right? So whatever your mechanism is now for selecting that future Max Planck person had to have been able to catch him. So one thing is you have to have that long-term vision. Um, what are other things? Another thing I really liked that well, he said was like, that. go ahead. Right. To, to keep at something for 20 years requires a lot of dedication. So one of the other tests is if you applied and you were rejected, they would allow you to reapply because just the sheer act of you saying, no, no, this is transformative. I want to be reconsidered shows that you're actually dedicated to it and you're willing to keep trying things over and over again, which doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah. Another thing I really liked is they when people would lay out what they wanted to research one research on if it wasn't transformational if you couldn't like by their pitch be like holy cow that would completely change the way that such and such a field operates then it wasn't worth investing in because it would just be incremental they're really after things which are not high risk high reward in today's vernacular right we talk about that in, in funding all the time high risk but high reward he argues that these are actually low risk but high reward which sounds impossible but he makes the case for why that's actually the case that it is quite possible it's just a matter of finding these needles in the haystack type of researchers that are able to pull this off. Mm -hmm. And going back again to why he preferred looking to individuals was 
giving freedom requires trust, right? If you're going to be giving someone a couple million dollars, you want to trust that they're actually going to use it right. When people are disconnected and it's some sort of group that's collaboratively working on it, it's harder to trust a single single person to do something. And so he put a he, he put a lot of emphasis into building trust between his partners. So if they were interviewing someone to come work in this uh, transformative division and receive funding for three or four years, they would actually go to their lab and talk to some of their graduate students and learn a lot about these people. You know, that was something I really liked. As I was reading this, I was telling my wife about it because he talks about the need for um, the administrative staff to help these, you know, Einsteins in the making. And one of the things he says about them is that, you know, extremely individualistic research like these clever people right here says as they are highly individualistic people one should expect that they will often be awkward (laughs) right (laughs) and that's true right think of that can you name a single scientist right now right a famous scientist of right now probably not maybe you're thinking of like elon musk or like but those are not necessarily the scientists those are those are celebrities essentially at the heads of corporations right think of scientists right and yet back then there were these famous people the linus paulings the I mean, we go on, we talk about them on our podcast every week, these amazing people out there. And so these people don't always have the social skills. My wife jokes in that says some of the synapses in your brain for knowing which pair of shoes to wear with that suit just didn't make it in lieu of knowing how to solve quantum chemistry, right? And whatever that uh, need may be, they talk about the need for administrators to help these people along with regular interactions, right? Regular updates, but not tied to milestones where you're saying, oh, if you don't hit this thing you promised us, we're going to pull the funding. They trusted them. It was that mutual trust that came in there. Okay, I think we're getting a little bit long, but just to wrap it up, maybe you made it this far and you're saying, okay, I'm a material scientist. I'm an undergrad. You know, I'm not applying for grants. Why should I care? Why should I read about this book? And I think that one thing that I notice is that a lot of people in science rarely read or study or think about their scientific field in abstract or go beyond just their specific field. They're like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to help make metals and that's going to be it. But I think if you want to be a leader in the field or go really beyond just doing that, you have to think about your field. And if you want to positively impact it, you have to think about your field. And if you're interested in science, then I think you also need to be interested in why some science gets funded and why some doesn't. If you have a great idea for doing something, it's probably a good idea to understand how the system works and how you can kind of manipulate it to to have a better chance of actually getting your research funded. And I'll say that if you're an academic listening to this, uh, there's every page of this that I've read so far, I have marked up extensively and written in the margins. It has so significantly resonated with me and gotten so many ideas percolating, not about the immediately day-to-day grind of my latest research project, but about big pictures about how academia should work, how I can spend my time to accomplish something meaningful as opposed to incremental. I think you're going to love this book because I certainly have. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Before we go, just a big thank you to Stripe Press for sending us several of these copies. What we're going to do is on our Instagram page, we're going to put a couple pictures of these books. We want you to go in the comments and say that if you were guaranteed funding, what would you research? We're going to go through and we're going to pick the top three interesting ones and we'll send you a copy of the book free of charge, which is great. Now you can read about it and learn how you can make that idea a reality or at least help change the, the industry to help make ideas like that a reality. And uh, if you like this book and you thought that this was kind of interesting, I encourage you to check out some of the other books that they've published. They have another one called The Art of Doing Science and Engineering. We have a review of that on our Instagram page that you can check out. I read through it. It was fantastic. It's by Richard Hamming. Um, But what I really like about their books is that even ones that are about coding have ideas that can extend into your field and your practice, right? I'm reading one about this guy who worked for Uber, and I learned about using systems of engineering management to help with my senior project, right? So there's a lot of books where it might not seem relevant, but you can 
bring some ideas over. And so that's what I really like about them. So I hope you'll check them out. Absolutely. And we just want to obviously throw out one last special thanks to our sponsors for this new year and year three. We've got some awesome sponsors. So a big thanks to Matt Match, who's been with us since the beginning. Thank you, Matt Match. Uh, if you haven't checked out their platform, do yourself a favor. Go right now, mattmatch.com. Just try and look up, even for a toy project, like think, all right, if I was looking for carbon fiber today, how could I use their platform? I think you'll be thrilled at all the additional information they give you, how easy it is to use. It's not like Sigma, where this is this clunky old dinosaur of a program. This is agile. These are people that are very responsive to customer needs, and I think you're going to dig what you find there. So that's matmatch.com. It'll help you find materials for the projects that you're working on. We also have a huge thanks to Materials Today. Materials Today by Elsevier is their flagship material science journal. It's killer. It is high-ranked for a reason. They publish great research there. They have high standards of publication. They find things that I think are both interesting from an engineering as well as a basic science perspective. So check out Materials Today for uh, the journals and also the products and content they have there. Catch you next time. See you next time. <laughs>